Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi there, my name is Zach Tomley, you're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. In case you are wondering, this is episode 61, which means that 60 episodes in this Whopper project have already been released since we started it in early November. By that logic, you should hopefully realise that jumping in here out of nowhere is probably not the best idea. But if you're just interested in how I do things here, well first of all you're very welcome. But if you've listened to the other 60 episodes and you're just waiting for me to get on with this, thanks for joining us for this ridiculous project and I hope you're able to keep up with it as much as possible. It's been a crazy last few days, we've seen an awful lot of things happening and the way that the structure of this project works means that maybe you'll have some idea now as to exactly how busy these people were a century ago. You might also be realising that This is taking an awful lot of work, and yeah, it is taking an awful lot of work, and a lot of preparation, and a lot of time, and a lot of research, and everything else, but I really enjoy it. You guys have been responding so well to this story that I'm bringing you, and I really appreciate it. If you are wondering how I'm able to spend all this time researching, 
making an episode come out every day, editing, all this crazy stuff, then you should look no further than the fact that this podcast is my job. Or at least it's one of my jobs. I'm able to make time for this show and I'm able to give it the love and attention to detail it deserves because you guys support this show so well on Patreon. So if you would like to do that, if you would like to go and support this show from as little as $1 a month to get something back in return, then go on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and you have my personal guarantee that whatever you give to this show to support it, you will get something back in return. It's not charity. It is kind of like a membership, sort of like a contract, like a better version of Netflix because you won't have to watch anything. You'll just be listening and it's only my voice, nobody else's. What more could you want from a membership that you pay into every single month? Obviously, we're 61 episodes in, so I've kind of run out of ways to say this by now, but I really appreciate all the support you guys have given me so far. We're surpassing 300 patrons now, and it's very, very exciting indeed, and I cannot wait to see where we bring this podcast into the future. If you weren't aware, for our seventh birthday on the 18th of May, we're holding a Q&A, so make sure to send your questions my way through the usual channels. And in case you weren't aware, once again, we have some pretty big news to drop on that episode. So make sure and tune in even just for that. Otherwise, guys, thanks for tuning in to yet another episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Hopefully, you're not scared away just yet. Without any further ado, let's get into it. listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 61. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 61 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. So last time we analysed the moment when the Germans arrived in Paris as a watershed moment in our narrative passed us by. Looking ahead with the minutes of the Council of Four, though, and it quickly becomes apparent that even as everything seemed to be changing, the Allied commitment to long meetings and fractious discussions had not diminished. With that in mind, I wanted to turn the microscope onto the last day of April 1919, where, incredibly enough, the Council of Four hosted a total of five meetings in a single day. This day, while a microcosm in the grand narrative of the Paris Peace Conference, presents a perfect blueprint of what this mission to end the war had become, and exactly how ridiculous this Versailles anniversary project has become in its attention to detail as well. So without any further ado, let's get into this. I'll take you all to the morning of the 30th of April, 1919. The first meeting of the 30th of April, 1919, began at 11am in President Wilson's Parisian house and it zeroed in quickly on the issue of the recently departed Italians. A common theme in Allied discussions since the Italians had left the building was one of legitimacy. Would the final treaty be legitimate if the Italian name was scrawled all over it now that they left? Would it not be better to remove all references to the Italians just to be safe? But what if the Italians returned? And what if, when they returned, 
They demanded the Allies adhere to the Treaty of London and that Fiume was handed over. So many questions, but the Allies cared about issues of legitimacy above all. The last thing they wanted was to give the Germans an excuse to fail to accept the final treaty. Interestingly, the process for removing the Italian names was undertaken in the final week of April, but this had to be painfully reversed once the Italians did return late in the first week of May. This complication provided yet another wrinkle in the unfortunate job of the printers and binders and technicians who delivered the final version of the Treaty of Versailles, and it helps to underline how difficult this final process of printing and getting all the details of that treaty together must have been. The process of printing the treaty out would only be complete on the morning of the 7th of May, and as we've learned, no single delegate or big allied statesman ever read the entire thing all the way through. The end result was thus the equivalent of creating a group essay with your peers and not proofreading it before handing it up to the examiner. As someone who's been on the receiving end of that process, oh dear, they must have been making a rather large mess. Now imagine though if your group essay contains 440 articles and more than 200 pages and you'll have some idea of the challenge which confronted the Allies as well as the Germans. Eliminating the Italian complication was the very least they could do in these circumstances. So in an attempt to clear the issue up, Clemenceau initiated the discussion by asking whether it would not be advisable to let Vittorio Orlando know that the Germans had arrived and that the Allied and Associated Powers would meet these Germans in a day or two. In this situation, Lloyd George advocated taking no action, reasoning that the Allies had already indicated the limits of their agreement and their red lines over the Treaty of London and Fiume. Wilson made the point that the Italians had been given opportunities to make their case and that as far as he was concerned, Italy could have any district in Austria provided she could secure it by a majority of votes in a plebiscite. Wilson emphasised that this idea of plebiscite would of course only apply to a clearly defined district and not to any small spot on the map. If the Italians alleged that a particular part of the map was Italian in character, they could have a plebiscite but only with certain technicalities and terms and conditions applying. Lloyd George reasoned that Italian claims to islands like the Dodecanese were not based on ethnicity and that their claim to the islands was based on security. According to the minutes, President Wilson said, That argument was not a valid one. If Italy insisted on her claims to Dalmatia under the Treaty of London, it would upset the whole peace of the world and especially of the Slavonic world. Clemenceau then piped up by noting that news had been received that morning regarding an Italian dreadnought which had been sent to Smyrna, a mostly ethnic Greek-Turkish city along the west coast of Asia Minor. Smyrna will become very important to our story later on. What was happening? Were the Italians planning to launch a preemptive strike or fait accompli against Turkey? Not quite. In fact, as we'll see, it was the Greeks rather than the Italians who were most keen for such a venture to save Smyrna. To give some perspective to the debate over Italy, our stenographer and everyman hero, Sir Maurice Hankey, reminded the Council of Four that Clemenceau, at the last meeting with Orlando and Sanino, had asked a direct question, that being whether the Italians would be present to meet the Germans at Versailles, and Orlando had replied that this depended on what happened at Rome. Lloyd George then did some reminding of his own, informing his colleagues that before the Italians had left, 
He had asked Orlando if they would be justified in putting forward claims on Italy's behalf if Italy was not present at Versailles to meet the Germans, that is. Orlando had recognised that this was impossible, and so, it would seem by this logic, the Italians had lost their voice in the conference, and they wouldn't be represented in its discussions unless they were actually present and returned to it. President Wilson then added to the debate by recalling a conversation he had had with Orlando in which the Italian Premier had shown quite clearly that he realised that if the Italian delegates did not return, they could not sign the treaty with Germany, they would be outside the League of Nations, and Signor Orlando had said some words which indicated that he considered they would be, in a sense, outcasts. Wilson had then pointed out that they were quarrelling with their best friends, to which Orlando had replied, in some phrase to the effect, that Italy would rather die with honour than compromise. The minutes indicated that the Allies did not reach a consensus on what to do about Italy in this morning meeting on the 30th of April, and this is probably the point when the act of removing all references to Italy from the peace treaty were kicked into high gear. Turning their attention to another issue, that of Germany and the peace treaty, Lloyd George interjected when Clemenceau indicated that the press should be present in large numbers, as the press wished to capture the moment when the treaty was handed to the German delegates. Lloyd George retorted, Might I suggest that it is very undignified and improper to admit the journalists and to treat the meeting as though almost it was a menagerie. I did not mind so much the presence of two or three journalists, but it had to be borne in mind that the Germans were in a very delicate and disagreeable position, and might have just cause to complain at descriptions being given of the precise manner in which they received the treaty. I had no bowels of compassion for the Germans, but I thought that the admission of journalists on such an occasion would be unprecedented. After some talk on compelling the Germans to agree to the terms of peace, the first of five meetings on the 30th of April dispersed. When they met again, roughly 30 minutes later, the room had notably gained another occupant. The Japanese were here now, and they fully intended to press their case for Kiachau and the Shantung Peninsula, which they had captured from Germany in the opening weeks of the war. Since 1897, the Shantung Peninsula and its natural body of water which it enclosed had represented a boon for German prestige. This was the birthplace of Confucius and the home of Sing Tao, a mere fishing village in 1897, but 20 years later, a large economic metropolitan port with electrification, running water and wide, planned streets. It was quite the prize. The Japanese were determined to cling to it after seizing it from the Germans. It certainly helped Japanese security concerns to imagine their safety net of Shantung surrounding Korea, which was just above this peninsula, but they would have to persuade the Allies first. Viscount Chinda and Baron Makino Nabuwaki, who we met earlier in April, were kicking their appeals into high gear here. They opened the noon meeting of the Council of Four by declaring, The policy of Japan is to hand back the Shantung Peninsula in full sovereignty to China, retaining only the economic privileges granted to Germany and the right to establish a settlement under the usual conditions at Tsingtao. The owners of the railways will use special police only to ensure security for traffic. They will be used for no other purpose. The police force will be composed of Chinese, and such Japanese instructors as the directors of the railway may select will be appointed by the Chinese government. It sounded at least partially well-intentioned. 
The Japanese would not stay on as occupiers of the peninsula. They would instead expect the same beneficial economic deal as the colonising Germans had had in the region. Depending on one's perspective, these demands could be interpreted as requests to guarantee friendly trade relations, or it could be seen as a policy of creeping imperialism. What was the situation with the police force? Why did the Chinese need Japanese instructors? Well, this was to protect their railway, the Japanese said, which the Japanese were best equipped and most experienced to do. To the more suspicious observer, though, these demands could be interpreted as regulations designed to trip up and irritate the Chinese so that they could be guaranteed not to accept them, and so the Japanese could then use this refusal as justification for heavier intervention. This was in fact confirmed by Viscount Chinda in short order, as he noted, In the last resort, and if China failed to carry out the agreements, if, for example, she would not assist in the formation of the police force or the employment of Japanese instructors, the Japanese government reserved the right to fall back on the agreements of 1918. And what were the agreements of 1918? Well, they were a series of unequal compromises, mostly on the Chinese side, which represented a collective recognition of Japanese supremacy in given regions of Asia including Manchuria. Wilson was always wary of the Japanese invoking bilateral agreements which had been made with a disadvantaged China. And Wilson also attempted to remind the Japanese that by the time these agreements could be invoked, Japan and China would be operating under the system of the League of Nations and Japan would be represented on the Council of the League. In such an event, Wilson asked why the Japanese shouldn't just voluntarily apply for the mediation of the Council of the League of Nations. The answer to this was obvious, and it was by no means exclusive to the Sino-Japanese relationship. Mediation by the League was a lovely idea in principle, but not when that mediation could very easily determine that you were in the wrong and had to back down. In the ring of defences and interests which the Japanese government was creating by 1919, it couldn't run the risk of mediation by the League, delivering this blow to its interests. Viscount Chinda said that even if the case was sent to the League of Nations, nevertheless, Japan must reserve her right in the last analysis to base her rights on her special agreements with China. If the Chinese government acted loyally, such case would not arise. But if the Chinese government refused to do so, the only course left to Japan would be to invoke the agreement. President Wilson was about as blunt as his diplomatic style would allow. What I want to urge is this, Wilson said. I do not want a situation to arise which will prove embarrassing. Wilson then went on to explain America's fundamental opposition to the principles put forward in the 21 Demands of 1915, that infamous ultimatum-style memorandum which the Japanese government had sent to its Chinese neighbour in 1915. As the Japanese government knew, Wilson said, the United States government has been much distressed by the 21 demands. Because the special arrangements which the Japanese continued to invoke were based upon the 21 demands, Wilson was of the opinion that, in the view of my government, the less the present transactions were related to this incident of the 21 demands, the better. I would like, as a friend of Japan, to see no reference to the notes of the last few years. If an occasion such as Viscount Chinda had postulated should arise, I hope that the Japanese government would not bring it before the Council of the League of Nations with a threat of war, but merely for friendly counsel, so that the Council of the League 
might make the necessary representations to China. Again, Wilson asked whether the League couldn't solve Japan's issues, and again the Japanese delegates replied in the negative, with the reassuring, at least in their view, point that such eventualities that they were then discussing would probably never even occur because the Chinese would surely see sense and relinquish economic rights to the Japanese on the Shantung Peninsula. The difficulty, Viscount Chinda said, was that President Wilson on his side did not admit the validity of these one-sided agreements with China, but the Japanese did. Chinda said that he only mentioned the fact so as not to be morally bound not to invoke these agreements. The situation, in other words, was very different in Japan, and Japan had to preserve her freedom of action. In the meanwhile, Chinda said that he hoped there would be no occasion for the refusal of the Chinese to carry out the agreements. In response to this, Wilson increased the temperature by insisting, in the minutes, that nothing he said should be construed as any admission of the recognition of the notes exchanged between Japan and China. Evidently, Wilson was so conscious of the unequal principles underpinning them that he wanted to ensure he was not associated with any aspect of them. Viscount Chinda said he had mentioned the point in order to remove any moral engagement on behalf of Japan not to invoke the agreements in question, and that he didn't construe this as Wilson giving his blessing for those notes. Wilson was plainly worried about being quoted out of context, and perhaps being blamed for giving way on China in the face of Japanese threats. After some additional back and forth over the terms, and some consideration of the question, what would the newspapers think, Morris Hankey asked what he was to send to the drafting committee, which would be tasked with working on the peace treaty. The settlement seemed to be that both Chinda and Wilson would be allowed to take what they wanted from the current arrangement. Both would be entitled to claim that they'd gotten what they wanted, and neither would get in trouble for giving their assent to the policy line of the other. It was certainly a limp conclusion, but the Japanese also had requests to make on that poisoned chalice of the negotiations, that being reparations. Lloyd George, likely very pleased with himself indeed, presented the then agreed-at solution to the Japanese delegates, proclaiming the new terms for a reparations commission which themselves had been recommended by an expert committee. Lloyd George explained, Belgium shall sit, as originally proposed, as one of the five members of the Commission for all general discussions and for all other questions except those relating to damage by sea, for which Japan shall take her place, and those relating to Austria-Hungary, for which Serbia shall take Belgium's place. This commission will thus always be limited in number to five, and the Japanese and Serbian representatives, on the occasions on which they are entitled to sit, will have the same power of voting as the delegates of the other four powers. Thus, each interested power would get something, but only when it was actively of interest to them and their delegation. Baron Makino Nabuwaki wasn't content with this, though. He wanted Japan to have permanent representation on the Reparations Commission, not representation conditional on whether or not the questions up for discussion were of direct interest to Japan. Evidently, the Japanese delegates viewed this as a point of honour. Since the other Allied powers enjoyed permanent representation, they should too. Chinda added a point on German prisoners, as the Japanese government had been holding some 5,000 men as POWs and were forced to incur the full costs of this for nearly five years. As compensation, if nothing else, Chinda said, Japan ought to have a permanent seat on the Reparations Commission. 
Perhaps he was aware of the danger of outstaying his welcome, though, because the minutes record Chinda as saying that he would not push the issue of prisoners and compensation if it would cause the Allies too much difficulty. Maybe Chinda had expected the Allies to then insist on Japan getting its compensation after all, kind of like when you offer to pay for the whole meal, on the expectation that the other person will say, no, 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 don't be ridiculous, I'll pay half. Well, interestingly, the Allies simply said that they appreciated this Japanese offer to drop their requests, and the meeting adjourned. If the Japanese had hoped that the Allies would budge with this tactic, then they were to be disappointed. It is likely, though, that the Japanese hoped by giving away on reparations and compensation in some areas, the Allies would then in their turn be more likely to be agreeable to Japanese political interests in the near future. With a break for the afternoon, the Allies reconvened, minus the Japanese appendage, at 4pm, for a discussion first on the credentials of the German delegates, then on the issue of whether to invite the Hungarian or Austrian delegates to Paris, where they might be presented with an outline of their peace treaties. Sir Maurice Hankey then intervened in the discussion and said that, as he was the only official present, he thought that he ought to put the point of view of the officials forward, and he felt it his duty to emphasise that the drafting committee was currently so overworked in bringing out the German treaty that Hankey felt confident they could not possibly prepare the Austrian treaty as well in so short a time. This was a fair point, which would be proved true by the inherent tardiness and rushed nature of the peace treaty drafting process. But President Wilson said that this idea of sorting through some Austrian and Hungarian terms was only proposed to discuss the outlines of the treaty with the Austrians. So in other words, it would not be necessary to present the Austrians with a complete treaty. Wilson also pointed out that the Hungarian de facto government was hardly more than a local government. By inviting the Hungarians to Paris, Wilson said, We should run the risk of our publics regarding them as people in close intercourse with the Russian Soviets. Lloyd George then noted that the Hungarian government, Soviet or not, had committed no atrocities, which was not quite true. Wilson added that many people had been rather alarmed at General Smuts's visit in the first week of April, and noted that he thought the Austro-German boundaries could be determined without consulting the Hungarians. Clemenceau asked the practical question of what was to be done with the Austrians and Hungarians after their views had been heard. Surely it would not do to allow their delegates to move about in Paris with any restrictions. Meanwhile, Clemenceau concluded, while the Allies focused on the Austrians, it was entirely possible that the Germans would present a good deal of work once they got the terms of the peace treaty in their hands. To deal with the Austrian and Hungarian delegates then, Wilson suggested that they should be sent somewhere outside of Paris, such as Fontainebleau. Wilson added that The immediate object of this proposal was the moral effect that would be produced on the Austrian people by inviting their representatives for consultation. Lloyd George, attempting to apply some sense of neutrality to the question, urged that there should be no differentiation between Austrians and Hungarians. He did not see why, just because the Hungarians were called the Soviet, they should not be met. A workman's government had just as much right to be dealt with as any other, Lloyd George said. Someone ought to have informed Lloyd George that a good justification for refusing to welcome the Hungarians was that their isolated government would probably not be in existence for much longer, judging by the lack of support which Bailakun enjoyed. In the end, it was agreed that Clemenceau, as president of the preliminary peace conference, 
should invite the representatives of the Austrian and Hungarian governments to come to Chantilly, a more convenient location than Paris, by the 12th of May. The Allies dispersed and returned to Wilson's room before 5pm, at which time another varied agenda lay before them. Reparations and French economic rights were now tackled, but in the specific case of Alsace-Lorraine, André Tardieu was front and centre, here presenting the case that the citizens of Alsace-Lorraine should receive reparations and compensation in the same manner as the other regions of France. It is impossible to say that Alsatians and Lorrainers are not French citizens and part of the French population. I feel I am entitled to put forward claims for them on the same ground as for other French citizens. Otherwise, France would have two classes of citizens. It is a matter of sentiment for France, and I ask that these people should be put on the same footing as other French citizens. Lloyd George made an interesting response to this claim, insisting that the French case with Alsace-Lorraine could not be dealt with exclusively, but according to principles already established. In a similar vein to how Wilson treated the Rhineland, Danzig and Fiume in case one party should use his compromise against him, Lloyd George was loudly adamant that if the Allies backtracked with this case, they would be forced by moral arguments to backtrack on the others too. The British Prime Minister said, The principle had already been considered and decided in respect to Poland and Czechoslovakia. There had been considerable devastation in Poland, but Poland had nominally been at war against us, even though it had been against the will of the Polish people. Poles had actually taken part in the devastation of France. Similarly, soldiers from Alsace-Lorraine had taken part in the devastation of France too. It has been decided against the Polish claim. If, however, it were now granted to Alsace-Lorraine, it must be granted to the Czechs, Poles and Yugoslavs. The French government stood to lose a good deal by this. The second point was that the destruction in Alsace-Lorraine had been mainly wrought by the French armies when redeeming these provinces. I doubt if much destruction had been done by the German armies. In these circumstances, I feel the claim was not one that could be justified. Tardieu may have been taken aback by his allies' opposition, but he countered the Prime Minister's argument by insisting that, while the material devastation in Alsace-Lorraine was insignificant, what France wanted for Alsatians and Lorrainers was pensions for widows, orphans and the mutilated. Incredibly, though, Lloyd George stood his ground, arguing now that these wounds to the citizens of Alsace-Lorraine were due to French bombardments and British bombing. Therefore, it was rather difficult in these circumstances to allow any claim by France on behalf of Alsace-Lorraine to the reparations pot. Wilson added the stinging point that many of these widows and orphans would be those of German soldiers who had fought against France. Wilson said his advisers took the same view as Lloyd George, and Wilson concluded that he could see the sentimental importance of the matter for France, but he noted that to agree would be to upset the general principles of reparation. Notably, the French representatives withdrew their proposal here, at least for the moment, and the meeting ended quickly after André Tardieu left. In the fifth and final meeting, which assembled on the 30th of April 1919 at half-five, little of consequence was decided upon. The meeting, according to the minutes, lasted only a few paragraphs, which seems unusual that the big three would gather for such a short space of time. What may have occurred was that Sir Morris Hankey neglected to record the minutes for the whole meeting. He may have been asked not to record their discussions. The Big Three may only have assembled to discuss this short issue after having forgotten it before, after all, 
or the Big Three may have simply decided that, after four meetings being held already, a fifth was too excessive even for them. Thankfully for us, the 30th of April was over. It had been an eventful day of meetings, but what had been really decided upon? The short answer is nothing much. The Italians had been given a platform, even while they weren't present, and they managed to haunt the conference as the printers shuddered at the thought of having to pick through the entire treaty, only to have to add Italy's name back into it if she returned. The Japanese laid down their demands, which were as predictable as they were unacceptable to Wilson. Both the Japanese and the Americans managed to overcome their differences in that case by essentially agreeing to disagree, and reasoning that the Sino-Japanese arrangements were viewed very differently indeed in their different states. Later in the afternoon, the French suffered a diplomatic setback when they attempted to claim reparations on behalf of the residents of Alsace-Lorraine, an exercise which was defeated by the combined opposition of the British and American leaders. It is significant that the French withdrew the proposal, particularly considering how animated they had been over the issue of former German lands earlier in the month. The 30th of April is one of only a handful of days in the Paris Peace Conference process to include five meetings in a single day. As we said, the fifth gathering was largely pointless and could probably have been resolved in a quick discussion at the end of a different meeting. But still, it is notable that as the Allies looked forward to May, they were already setting themselves up for an approach which would characterise the conference. The coming days were destined to be intense, long and absolutely filled with meetings for all sides. And now that the Germans had arrived, one could expect emotions to reach a fever pitch before long. The already fractious conference seemed to demand nothing less. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.